Elvis. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. Dear Young Rocker, you've made it to your senior year of college. You have another semester to go after changing your major so many times, but that's okay. The most playing you've done lately is making a handful of YouTube-based play-along videos, which for your listeners who are interested, yes, they are still up and available to watch. It will be a while still until you're in a band again for a bunch of reasons, one of which you will find out soon. For now, you have more non-musical lessons to learn. Lessons of the relationship variety. Strap yourselves into your car seats, babies, because this one's about love. While I'm pushing the floor away from myself in downward-facing dog, I wonder if it's dark outside yet. There aren't any windows in the yoga room. I hate that it's already getting dark out earlier. The instructor tells us to stick our right leg up in the air and flip our dog over. I look at him for a second. His bald head and tattoos are shining with sweat. I start to turn myself over and as I'm rotating, I catch sight of her again. The tall girl with fake-looking dyed red hair. I swear to God, she's staring at me. I know who she is, but I've never talked to her. I think she's dating that guy Frank I had band practice with two times. She showed up to this yoga class with my old roommate, Frida. Me and Frida used to come to this class together but now we don't really hang out anymore. Once again, another friend I've just lost touch with and don't really know why, when it feels like I had made an effort to be a good friend. I probably did something dumb, oh well. We all get down on our backs to relax for a second, and the teacher turns down the thumping house music and switches it to something more ambient. I close my eyes and swear I can feel that girl looking at me. I can't even remember her name, but I think it's something kind of Russian. Anna, Katrina. <laughs> Clearly, her and Frida are best friends now. When we get up to go, I see that my shoes are next to theirs. Ugh. It seems like it would be weird to move them to the other end of the bench so I just sit down and start putting my feet in my sneakers. Hi, Chelsea, Frida says in a cool tone. Hi, I say. The tall girl looks at me sort of, but also sort of doesn't. She makes a sound, but I'm not sure if it was supposed to be a hi to me. I feel really awkward. So I finish tying my shoes and ask Frida some basic question about how her classes are going and say bye. As I'm walking back to my dorm room, I feel my phone vibrate. 
it's a text from Frida. You used to play music with Frank, right? She asks. I respond, yeah, but we only practiced like twice. Another text pops up right away. And you like did stuff with him, right? What the hell? Does she think I hooked up with Frank? Ugh. Why would she think that? I never even hung out with him, not even once, for anything other than quiet, awkward band practice. It's so weird, and I'm so instantly pissed that I pretend not to know what she means by the immature phrase of did stuff. So I just respond, we never played a show or anything. I literally saw him like twice. Yeah, she responds, but you like hooked up, right? Now I feel even angrier. Just because I'm a friggin' girl means I have to make out with everyone I play music with? Why the hell would Frida do this to me? Then I remember the girl she was with in yoga class who was staring at me. God damn it. She's probably the one who made Frida text me. She must be Frank's weirdly possessive girlfriend or something. Why the hell can't anyone just see me as a musician and not a stupid girl musician? Even other girls. And maybe it's better I'm not in a band. God. All the drama of high school comes back to me. Yeah, I don't need that crap ever again. Obviously, I would never repeat those mistakes after losing my entire social life. Screw music. I'll just keep on writing alone in a room, I guess. Steam builds up in my head, and I feel my face turn red. What a crappy thing to ask me with absolutely no evidence. Besides, I was making out with other people that entire time, and Frida knows that because we lived together then. I write a long text without proofreading it, And when I hit the send button, I imagine launching a missile at her. Yeah, no way. Frank is totally greasy looking and stupid. I wouldn't get near him. All we did was play music together. Really not interested in that dopey guy. Her response makes it clear she doesn't believe me. I block her number. So much for friends. I'm sweating now pretty hard under my sweatshirt. I'm hiking this trail faster than I ever have. I'm almost to the end of the loop and I haven't seen him still. I swear when I parked and saw him get out of his car in my rearview mirror that he walked toward the start of this trail that I'm on. I started going from the other end in the opposite direction, hoping we'd cross paths. I glance around and see no one's around me. So I look up at the trees as I keep stomping and I silently beg them. If I'm meant to meet him, let it happen. Show me. And if I'm not, I'll just go home and give up this crush, okay? Just give me a sign. I finally am at the end of the trail, coming to the part where it opens up to a field with a small hill. As I get to the top of the hill, 
I see someone sitting a little bit down the slope in the sun. It's crazy warm for November, nearly 80 degrees. It's gonna be my birthday in exactly a week. Today is 11-11. Make a wish, I tell myself, but I already have. The person sitting in the sun is in a t-shirt and playing a ukulele and singing to himself and oh my god, it's him and oh my god, he's a musician. I didn't think my heart could beat any faster than it already was. But it suddenly doubles. My wish has been granted. Now I have to live with the consequences. I want to run back to my car to just walk right behind him and drive home and try to breathe normally while I hate myself forever. But he turns to me as I come up to him. I can't do this. I can't possibly talk normally to someone I am very attracted to. My brain will shut down. Hi, I say. He stops singing and says hi back. Soon, I'm sitting on the hill next to him and we're talking about being musicians. My throat is so tight, I can barely get enough air out of it to make the words. It feels like I'm choking on spit as I talk. It actually hurts, and I hope you can't tell, even though I know my voice is cracking and I keep gulping. If I say a sentence longer than a couple words, I get choked out toward the end and my eyes start watering because I can't get any oxygen in and my head feels like it's swelling up. Luckily, he seems okay with moments of silence. It doesn't feel awkward. He seems to be taking in the natural beauty, unlike stupid Aaron who would just talk about his crazy ideas of how he's going to take over the world with his yoga powers the whole time we hiked. But. I can tell nature means a lot to this guy. I know because in environmental philosophy, the class we're in together, he's said things that I really relate to about how he wants to just throw his cell phone into a lake and really be in the world. A flock of Canadian geese flies over us really low. It's so quiet here, I can actually hear their wings flapping. It almost sounds like machines, like they have motors whirring inside. Then, a brown shaggy dog walks into the middle of the field below us and just stops and stares up at us. No owner around. We wave at the dog. Matt says he's more of a cat person. Yeah, I say, me too. The sky is the bluest I can ever remember seeing it and the sun is so warm. This is fate. We talk a little more, and my throat relaxes a bit. He knows Andre, too, and we talk about how he's the kindest, most inspiring person. And then we talk about our favorite bands. He says he likes the Smashing Pumpkins, too, and that music is the most meaningful thing to him. He gets it. All of it. I have this weird thought that just pops into my mind. I think I might marry this person. Then I remember again that today is 11-11 on a perfect day, and I randomly ran into someone I've been obsessed with for months 
on my favorite spot that I come to hike at least three times a week. And I find out we care about all the same things. I'd been trying to get the courage to ask him a question or just say hi after every single class since the beginning of the semester. Just couldn't do it. So God, or whoever, made this happen. It's meant to be. He must know it too. He says he has to get to work at Starbucks, so we start walking toward the parking lot. I say something about how I was thinking of taking a year off from school or changing my major again, but that I don't want to end up being in college when I'm 30. Oh yeah, he says, I'm 30. Oh, I can't think of a response. I just say, cool, well, see you at school. And I get in my car. I turn the rear view mirror toward me and just look into my own eyes stunned. I just met my soulmate. Professor Hay is drawing an old-fashioned wire bird cage on the blackboard, slowly drawing one wire at a time as she reads. Imagine yourself a bird inside of a bird cage. If you look very closely at just one wire in the cage, you cannot see the other wires. If your conception of what is before you is determined by this myopic focus, you could look at that one wire up and down the length of it and be unable to see why a bird could not just fly around the wire at any time it wanted to go somewhere. Furthermore, even if one day at a time you myopically inspected each wire, you still could not see why a bird would have trouble going past the wires to get anywhere. There is no physical property of any one wire, nothing that the closest scrutiny could discover that will reveal how a bird could be inhibited or harmed by it, except in the most accidental way. It's only when you step back, stop looking at the wires one by one, microscopically, and take a macroscopic view of the whole cage, that you can see why the bird does not go anywhere. And then you will see it in a moment. It will require no great subtlety of mental powers. It is perfectly obvious that the bird is surrounded by a network of systematically related barriers, no one of which would be the least hindrance to its flight, but by which their relationship to each other are as confining as the solid walls of a dungeon. She erases all the wires but one, and starts over. Pointing to it, she says, let's take apart Fry's metaphor. Let's say you're a woman, trying to have it all, as they say. This wire says, if you have kids, you'll have to give up your career aspirations. Everyone tells you, well, you can figure out a way around that. Look at all this open space. So you go the opposite direction to get around this one wire, but then she draws another wire. You hit this other wire that says, if you don't have kids, you aren't fulfilling your potential as a woman. So you decide, okay, I'll have kids and keep my career. But then when you try to escape again, you suddenly see this other wire that says, a working woman who spends time with her kids doesn't have as much energy to climb the career ladder. So you hire a nanny and put your kids in after school programs. And then you hit this other wire that says, 
if you let others raise your kids, you're a bad mother. You're so desperate to get out of this cage, you consider running away from your family or quitting your job, but everywhere you turn, you see another wire, and eventually there's nowhere to go. Are you guys starting to get it? We all nod, even the boys. She asks, do we ever hear men without kids described as cold or talked about like there's something wrong with them? Or how often does a guy say he wants to have kids someday and someone says, well, what about your career? Like pretty much never, right? I can feel pieces of something being put together in the back of my mind. I'm realizing the idea I had when I was younger that it was up to everyone individually to make ourselves equal on a personal level was just plain uneducated. I flash back to being a 10-year-old tomboy and saying in school, what about men's rights? I'm not a feminist, I'm a manist. (laughs) At the beginning of the semester, Dr. Hay had asked us to raise our hands if we considered ourselves a feminist, and I hadn't. But I think it's changing. For some reason, as she talks, I keep seeing a bass in the cage. What am I? My leg starts bouncing as the idea solidifies. I think about how I was always so hard on myself about being a technically skilled player, but I never noticed guys worrying about it. They just would show off and play guitar solos in front of people, even when they weren't really good. I didn't feel like I had the option to be anything but great. But I thought that was my fault and my responsibility. I just thought I had to do what it took to not be a dumb girl. That's up to me. I didn't see the cage. How did this take me so long? Jeez. I raise my hand. My whole body is trembling. Dr. Hay calls on me. Hi, uh, I think I'm in a cage as a bass player. She asks me to elaborate. I tell her that when I first started playing bass, I was the only girl around who played a rock instrument, and I was terrified for anyone to see me play until I had practiced enough to know I was better than most people. I knew I would just reinforce everyone's expectations if I sucked or was just okay. I had to practice harder than anyone to be taken seriously, even if I was just playing Nirvana songs. But I had always just told myself it had nothing to do with being a girl, that I was just a bass player. I never even let myself think of that possibility. But I was putting all this extra effort just to be seen on a level playing field. I was defensive and insecure about my playing and thought that that was just me being an anxious person with self-esteem issues. But now I realize it's bigger than that. That most girl musicians must go through this, but I just didn't really know any. I had run into the wires of the cage that were built by other people's opinions. Even if you don't feel like you're different, if you're viewed that way, then you have to deal with it and it can mess you up. That's exactly the idea of the cage, Dr. Hay says. Great example. So you feel like you didn't have the option of being just a regular old garage band bass player like most guys could be? Like 
you couldn't just practice a little bit because your ability would be extra scrutinized and if you weren't excellent, you'd be good for a girl, right? Yes, exactly. I almost gasp. I think back to a million things that have happened, feeling so angry and defensive and scared about people seeing me play. What do I do with this information? How many other girls have felt this way and thought they were just being hard on themselves? I need to write about this. This is my calling. I knock on the doorframe of Andre's office. I see him in there on the phone behind a desk, swamped with papers. I wait a minute and I wonder if this will be anything like the conversation with Dr. Hay, where she told me if I am dedicated to having children or having the ability to choose where I want to live someday, that becoming a philosophy professor could severely impede on that. I could waste years and thousands of dollars on a PhD and never even get a professorship. So that idea is out but I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do after undergrad. Andre hangs up the phone and gestures for me to sit down. Chelsea, 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 he says, and just looks at me. I feel like it's the look a dad gives their kid right before they start a lecture. It's the, you're so young look. I'll start by answering your email. Yes, you're absolutely good enough to get into an MFA writing program. There's no question about that. You can't be thinking of if they want you because they will and they do. Instead, you need to think if you need them. In my head, I say, yeah, of course I need them. That's how you become legit. There's no way my parents will let me not go to grad school and I'm running out of ideas here. Look, he continues, you can write whether you're in school or not. There's really nothing they can give you as a writer you can't get on your own, and it won't help you get a job either. Being a good writer comes from talent and life experience, and you already have talent. I kind of hate saying it like that. I, I hate the talent word, but you do have it, and you need to accept that about yourself without someone else having to tell you, all right? Yeah, sure, I wish, I think. He goes on. But to get life experience, you need to be out in the world, not behind a desk. You know, I tried an MFA and it didn't work for me. I left Iowa. I'm not gonna tell you what to do. You could be a bartender or waitress. You know, you can write all morning and afternoon and then go to work all night and make friends and lovers and just, you know, hear other people's stories and travel, try out other crazy jobs. That's the way to do it. I think about what my parents would say if I told them I was going to be a bartender and not go to grad school. Ha ha ha. Yeah, right. I think of my dad looking grossed out when he said my cousin was marrying a bartender from Florida. Like that was the equivalent of an escaped felon. I see you thinking over there, Andre says. But of course, if that's what you want to do, I'd be honored to write you all the recommendations you want.
Someday, I'm gonna put a ring on this finger, Matt says. I stop breathing. He's holding my left hand and looking down at it. I look at his face. His expression seems like it could be serious, but he's one of those people with super deadpan humor, so I don't know what to think. He wouldn't joke about that, right? Why wouldn't he look me in the eye to say something like that? He's just looking at my hand. He's just not much of an eye contact guy, though. My eyes start welling up. I want him to look at me and say more. Is this the moment I know the person I'll be with forever? I want him to tell me I'm the only one, the best one, the most special, unique person he's ever met. I want to talk about all the fun times we've had and the places we've gone and how it's all led up to this moment. But he doesn't say anything else. He just gets up from the bar stool and says, gotta set up my drums now, and goes toward the backstage area. I'm left sitting alone at the bar with my rum and coke. I finish it, and the bartender gives me another right away. I always get free drinks at his shows, as I'm always the youngest girl in the room. The other band members' girlfriends aren't here. I'm at pretty much every show, and I'm alone at a lot of them. I don't really know how to get along with the ladies anyway. One is actually a wife. They're all older than me, of course, but they've known each other for a while, and they always comment on how young I am. And I don't know what to say to that. Like, yep, it's almost easier alone. I don't have to pretend to be following their conversation over the music. I just really cannot make out what people are saying when they talk to me at shows. But that's how girls connect, talking. Matt's band comes on stage and interrupts my brooding. They start playing right away. And I am drunk enough, so I get up and start dancing during the first song before anyone else does. It's weird. I used to hate dancing. I could never get my body to move at school dances. I just felt so self-conscious. But I guess I can dance to a band. I didn't realize I had this ability. I guess drinking is the key. At first, I'd only dance if a group of people was dancing and I was super drunk. But now, it's my main form of exercise. I don't even mind being the only one out there, because usually people follow me. I never really dance with anyone else, though. If a guy tries to dance with me, I just shimmy away to the bathroom because I can feel Matt staring at me from behind the drum kit. He always asks me about it afterwards. So did you like that guy, he'll say, even if I only sort of danced with a guy for like 10 seconds and the guy clearly initiated it. I make eye contact with Matt as he plays. He's a really talented drummer, and he's played these songs a billion times, so I know he won't mess up. He crosses his eyes and sticks out his tongue at me, and I do it back to him. I do a silly dance move and roll my eyes around all crazy. I think I'm on my third drink. This always happens at Matt's shows. Maybe it's the reason I dance. Maybe I'm not actually naturally more confident. I'm gonna try not to throw up tonight. I've been doing that too much. Two drinks, I'm usually okay if the car ride isn't too bad. 
but three or four is when I have to try really hard to keep it down when I lie down in bed. But while I'm up and dancing, it just feels all warm and tingly. My hips always feel the buzz first for some reason. That's why dancing feels good. A few people are dancing near me now, mostly women who are at least 20 years older than me. They cheer on the band and make eye contact with them as they dance. It's Matt's drumming making them dance. I know it. He's actually a good dancer himself, which is fun sometimes when we actually get to watch other people play. He's a good singer too. He has this crazy deep voice. As more people start dancing and nodding their heads to the music, I look at the bass player and feel jealous. I'm just as good as him, if not better. I asked to try out after the first bass player said he was leaving, but Matt said no, they already had someone. Whatever. It's been so long since I've played a show. Almost five years if you don't count my stupid college jazz ensemble, which I definitely don't. I look up at the stage again. I can tell Matt likes making people dance. I can see how powerful he feels behind the kit sitting up so straight. It makes sense. He's been doing it a long time. I wonder if I've gotten worse at bass since I haven't been in a band in so long. I haven't even made a YouTube bass cover video in a while now. The most I use my musical knowledge anymore is just helping break down and set up Matt's drum kit. I don't know if it's just the alcohol, but this feeling that I should be up there performing starts hitting me strongly. As I dance around, I even make up words to a part of a song that doesn't have any. It should be me up there, it should be me. I sing, just barely audible, and dance to my own little song. I've been thinking about finding a band. I told Matt about it, and he just said, I'd be really freaked out if you're spending time alone in a room with a bunch of other guys every week. When we started dating, he told me his ex-girlfriend wasn't supportive of how much time he spent playing music. I told him that would never be me. I'd never be jealous of his band, because I'm a musician too. I get it. I know how important a band is, I told him. Sometimes I can't believe how jealous he is but he always says it's just because I'm so pretty that it makes him worry. He knows other guys are looking at me all the time and it drives him crazy, he says. Well, lucky for him, there usually aren't any young guys dancing to his music. As I move around to Shakedown Street by the Grateful Dead, I think about brainwave vibration from my cult days. I let my head shake back and forth and see if I can get my thoughts to disappear and float away. The rum helps. The next morning, I set down the plates of breakfast in front of me and Matt. So, you decided to butter your own toast, but not mine, he says. I'm about to laugh, because I think he's being sarcastic, like imitating a demanding boyfriend, but I look at his face and realize he's serious. Oh, sorry, I say. I didn't know if you wanted butter or jelly or what. 
He goes into the kitchen and says something to himself loudly about how I need to be more conscientious. Is that true? Am I an asshole? I go between feeling like an angry little kid and a stupid, inconsiderate idiot. Which one is right? I feel like my dad is mad at me or something. I want to talk about it more, but Matt's not like that. He starts petting his cat, and it's over. I don't have the nerve to keep it going. He told me when we started dating that his ex used to bicker all the time, and I said I'd never be like her because we had more in common than they did. We got each other more. So we just don't talk about stuff. Like when at his birthday party, he left me alone for most of it, and I told him afterwards that I felt uncomfortable because I didn't really know anyone there, and I was way younger than all of them. And he just rolled away from me in bed and turned off the bedroom light and wouldn't talk about it. I turned it back on and asked if he would look in my eyes and talk more with me, and he just reached up and flicked the light off again. He wants to go to the New Hampshire liquor store today before the 4th of July party. And I say, we can take my car. On the ride, he tells me that his band leader told him not to bring me to shows anymore. What, I say? He says it's because I was making faces at them. They thought I was being rude. Um, no, I was trying to make silly faces at you, my boyfriend. Are you kidding? Just be careful with that, he says. I can't believe he didn't stick up for me. I've always worried his bandmates don't like me because they never talk to me. And I don't know what the heck to say to 35-year-old men, so I usually just kind of hide from them. I get it. I'm the weird, horrible, silent girlfriend. He doesn't say anything the rest of the ride. I start feeling worse and worse about myself. How is this the same guy who acted like he wanted to marry me last night? I want to ask him about that, but I don't have the guts. We pull into the parking lot and I ask him if something's wrong. I just feel weird when you drive, like I'm supposed to be the one to drive. I don't understand what he's saying, but I don't even know what to say back to that. Like, it's my own car. I'm the one insured for it. How does this make any sense? He says, I just don't feel in control of things. Think about this for a second and then say, like, you feel less of, like, a man, I say. His silence tells me I've hit the nail on the head. He does always drive us, doesn't he? Wow. I tell him he can drive my car home. Dear Young Rocker, I know you feel sort of like a dumb cliche for getting caught up with an older man. And technically, I guess that's true. But let's talk about respect for a minute, because that's the one thing that, in my learned opinion, makes or breaks a relationship. 
even if you have a lot of things in common with someone, including deeply emotional things, and you're super attracted to each other, and you have the same sense of humor, and like to go to the same places, and do the same things, and even have good physical chemistry in the bedroom. Sorry to sound like a mom, but anyway, even if you have all of that stuff with someone, it almost doesn't matter, any of it. And being mature in your relationships means realizing that. But you aren't mature yet, so right now, my young friend, you're probably like, what the hell, aren't those things exactly what makes a good match? Nope. All that stuff is awesome icing on the cake, dear. But what really, truly, deeply matters more than anything else is respect. And you currently do not have that. Which is one reason large age differences in relationships tend not to work out. There are also guys who can only feel like a man if they are completely dominant in the relationship. They think of themselves as sort of alpha males or something, and that can even appear sexy to younger girls because it's portrayed that way in movies and TV. They want your respect, but they won't give it back. Personally, I think that's trash and an abusive personality type and completely unattractive and that you shouldn't get anywhere near those guys because you are an amazing person who deserves to respect yourself and be respected by your partner. So big red flag for you going forward is guys who belittle you for not buttering their toast or insist on driving your car or won't look you in the eye when you try to have a conversation about your feelings, or who are constantly jealous when you've done nothing wrong. Like when you hang out with a group of friends and there happens to be some guys there. You actually do write a pretty good song about this later, so it's not all for naught. Don't let yourself fall in love with someone to the point of making life choices based on being with them until they've proven their respect for you. It's a time thing, and it can take years, because a lot of people are on their best behavior and not their real selves around you for the first six months to two or even three years of dating. Knowing someone you're truly deeply compatible with takes a long time. Chemistry and romance are fun, and obviously without them there's almost no point, Although you can gradually become more and more attracted to someone over time who doesn't wow you at first, if they treat you well and support you being you. But my point is, you can't only use attraction and shared interests as evidence of someone being good for you, or the butterflies you feel in your stomach as reasons for falling in love. That's not real love. True, deep love, unfortunately, has a lot more boring-sounding components to it, like respect and loyalty and patience. Things that only reveal themselves over long periods of time. Who keeps showing up for you and truly listening to what you have to say, year after year, even when you aren't feeling lovey-dovey with each other? Who is excited for you to follow your own passions and never ever jealous of that? That is what you look for in a partner. Also, about the MFA thing, 
Andre was kind of right. But hey, I know how hard it is to not do what your parents want. And once again, sure, there are many paths to take. And it feels like you'll never know the right one. But that's just because there is no right one. There's just the one you end up taking, and it becomes the right one. I promise you can't do life wrong, no matter how many mistakes you make. And you're right. You should absolutely be the one on the stage, kid. Next time on Dear Young Rocker, Chelsea graduates college and looks for new connections on Craigslist. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. The show was written and created by me, Chelsea Erkson. I also wrote the theme song, I record and edit the episodes, and I create many of the musical pieces and sound effects you hear in the show. The other half of our two-person production team is Colin Fleming, who provides more sound design and music and also mixes the episodes. I would also love if you would join me on Instagram at Dear Young Rocker and follow Double Elvis too. I also have Facebook and Twitter, and I just really love hearing stories and seeing pictures of your own awkward young rocker beginnings. So please dig up an old picture and tag me, and I will definitely reshare it. And please, please share this story with anyone, anyone who has a young rocker in their life who you think could be touched by this because that's the whole point and write a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show because that goes far toward the goal of helping kids feel less alone too. Thank you. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.